This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we return this week with another episode focusing on the nexus between bridge builders and media, as again we did last week with our interview of Ellie Pillay, the Mishpacha publisher and chairman of the Haredi Institute of Public Affairs, the person who stands at that intersection between attempting to bring people together and employing media to do so. This week, we interview another such individual, Nehemia Coopersmith, in a very different way, is also looking to traverse chasms in Jewish society, bring Jewish education to the masses, and he does so through the usage of new media, namely the very popular H.com website, which he founded and has maintained since its inception quite a few years ago. H.com sees over a million hits per month and is a comprehensive and exhaustive resource for a wide range of Jewish interests and needs. Nehemiah has a compelling personal story and a fascinating narrative to share about the history and future of internet media in the Jewish world. Next week and beyond, we will in fact transition to more conventional media personalities, people who are doing wonderful work as columnists, advocates, and so forth on the Israeli scene and in the Jewish world broadly. But meanwhile, we turn our attention this week to Aish.com founder and editor, Nehemia Coopersmith. We are here with Rabbi Nehemia Coopersmith in probably the most important and beautiful place on earth and I say that without hyperbole literally overlooking the western wall in the old city of Jerusalem the office uh, they talk about corner offices in Manhattan or, or London or wherever else you want to be I guarantee none of them can compete with this view that we have right here welcome Rabbi Coopersmith thanks very much great to be here and uh, we want to get into how you came to be overlooking the wall and as well as managing founding managing publishing, however we'll describe it, uh, one of the most uh, influential and widely distributed Jewish websites on the World Wide Web. But let's take it from the top and tell us a little bit about where you're from, what your background is. Okay, I'm originally from Toronto, Canada, and I grew up in a typical conservative Jewish home, which meant, you know, I went to Hebrew school, got thoroughly turned off to Judaism over there, <laughs> went to the school on high holidays, and uh, what made me different was that already at the age of 15, 16, I suffered from angst. I was very much aware. Existential angst. Existential angst, yeah. <laughs> Which is a little you know, peculiar for someone so young to be going through that. But I really, you know, since I grew up in a pretty comfortable home, you know, upper middle class, had everything I, I wanted, I realized right away that uh, life is not about making money. This is not what is going to satisfy I think me. they call that affluenza. Don't yeah. They? <laughs> And Toronto is a very uh, traditional yeah, community, right? Yeah, a little more traditional, traditional than the States. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, being Jewish was important to me, but I had no idea what it meant 
uh, you know, and it didn't attach really any meaning to to me. But but I knew from the get go that there had to be more to life than just making money. Interesting. And at that time, my my older brother Eric, he was one of the first people in Toronto who became religious. And back then, you know, it wasn't like the burgeoning Baltu movement we have today, where everyone knows somebody who became religious. It was a shocking. Uh, blow to the Jewish community, like they, they couldn't believe that someone like my brother, who was like a jock and everyone knew him, would end up in a cult like Asia Tower. They thought that he was brainwashed, and uh, people just couldn't believe it. And I had enough respect for my brother to know that there's no way he was brainwashed. And if he was, my parents would go and bring him back, you know. But so I suspended judgment and wanted to understand what's going on, what is he doing. And I remember very vividly then that. Uh, Rabbi Noah Weinberg was coming to Toronto to give a class and we all, all my friends, my brother friends, like, like, it was like about 50 of us, like a whole mixture of different cliques were going to hear this rabbi, who Eric's rabbi, who's responsible for him, you know, staying in Israel, <laughs> become religious. We all want to meet. Who is this man? What year was right? this? This was in 1980? 1980, okay. I think it was 1980. And your like brother that. had just been like traveling the world kind of thing? He was traveling across Europe and he was going to play hockey. Whole and then, uh, <laughs> he ended up to go, he was in Jerusalem and he ended up going to meet Ephraim Shore, who's right next to his over. The hall. <laughs> yeah, who they had a mutual friend and she was very upset that Ephraim was also in Israel studying the yeshiva. So my brother uh, happened to you know, come across Asia Torah and he met Ephraim. He said, Come on, quick, get, let's go get your passport. I'll get you out I'll of here. I'll get you out of here. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, deprogrammed. What are you talking about? He said, You know, you, you're, you're in a call. I'll, I'll, I'll get you out. So that's when my brother like, met Rav Noach and started taking classes. And, uh, you know, he was blown away by the wisdom here. And he left. He went back to uh, Kibbutz uh, up, up north, a very secular Shomeratzir Kibbutz. And interestingly, he told he told the friar. He told him, "No, I'll come back when I finish kibbutz. I'll come back and check things out." And <coughs> he was in kibbutz having a good time. He had a non-Jewish roommate, and and he was debating, "Should I? Should I go back?" And then uh, Ephraim, It was Benin's money. It was a it was a holiday, and Ephraim was traveling around up north. And on the bus, he was driving by this kibbutz that my brother was on. And Ephraim, you have to realize, my friar barely knew my brother. He just met him once or twice, right. and. Uh, he was driving by, he said, hey, Eric Cooperson's on this kibbutz. Ephraim decided to get off the bus and say, let me go look up and see what's happening. <coughs> and try and convince him to come back to, to, to Asia and wow. explore more learning. He could have easily, you know, stayed on the bus, go on his merry way, and, it, you know, my trajectory in life, his trajectory in life would be completely um, different. It's than amazing how day. singular moments yeah. can be so life-defining in terms of altering that trajectory. Exactly. And everything goes a different direction. And it was just because he, you know, he cared about this too. He didn't really know and decided, let me go check him out. And, uh, and because Ephraim because did that, eventually my brother did go back to Aish and decided to stay for three months to take the beginner's program. And that's when it really hit the fan at my house. And my parents came to Israel and uh, to see what he was doing. They were very concerned. Then when Noah came to Toronto, and that's when we go. We went to go hear him. Yeah. And I went with my parents. And at that time, you know, my parents didn't realize, but I was very open, very, very much like reading a lot of secular philosophy. I was, I was, I was searching for sure. really meaning. You know, this is about the best I could do. I was a sixteen-year-old. Yeah. 
uh, very eager to meet this rabbi, and I went to go hear him, and I was blown away. I thought Reb Noach was, uh, was, was tremendous. I, I didn't disagree, disagree with anything he said. He presented Judaism in a way that was, was relevant, wise, something that I got to pursue, and I was very excited and, and like I was. What amazed. about it? Was it that it was logical? What it was that, that, that it, it was very, to you? it was it was practical wisdom that was very relevant and relatable. I disagree with you know he's just addressing it. back then, back then I didn't realize it was it was a class you know I teach all the time five levels of pleasure, and uh, I thought it, it made a lot of sense. And I remember the drive home you know telling my parents that you know you can't disagree with this rabbi like he's he just makes sense and and anyone who's open minded would say, this is something I've got to pursue. That's what I said to them. Then, got out of the car, and our street was the place where all these people, you know, congregated. And we were all wanted to, you know, we meet up together to discuss what it right, what happened, you know. <laughs> so I remember that this uh, guy who was, he must have been 21, 22, you know, and he was a person who, much older than me, who I really looked, <laughs> looked up to. Like, he was like the person who, you know, he was, Cool, you know, like you the know, sage of the street. Yeah, like you, who was like my hero, the guy who I really looked up to. He said, "Wow, that rabbi was such a jerk." Interesting. And everybody was going, "Yeah, what an idiot! Can you believe it?" And I was like, within, like on a dime, all the people who I really looked up to fell down. You know, I know were knocked off the pedestal because I saw right away they're not being honest they're not being open-minded they're just dismissing this because they they're they're not willing to look and, and explore and challenge their own beliefs oh. and i i just saw like like this this is not you can't live your life this way and at that point i decided right then and there i got to finish high school and i got to take a year and go to israel and that summer as a family, we decided to go to Israel and spend time, you know, with my brother, tour the country, my first trip to Israel, and I went to Eshitara. And back then, it was the era of backpackers. Yeah. And the Jewish quarter was buzzing with people and classes. There were 60 people in the classes, everyone arguing and discussing and philosophy. Any time, like, yeah. And it was, like, enthralling for me. This is, like, I felt like... Like I woke up in a dream, this is exactly what I want. Like we're talking about meaningful issues and people care about things and I can see how you can grow and people are looking for the truth here and I met like, rabbis that really, I thought were, were, were had tremendous insight and I became very close with one rabbi in particular and I loved it and uh, decided, okay, I had to go back for my last year of high school, right. which was incredibly painful because to me it was like leaving meaning and purpose to uh, one more year just like nonsense really did you have a grade 13 over there or it was grade 13 oh no you know grade 13? a little bit it's on america uh, it's, it's over there. there's no there's no longer grade 13 in toronto oh, they got rid of it they abolished that yeah they got rid of it but it was it was my last year grade 13 it was like it was the equivalent first year university but interestingly ace toronto opened up that fall Interesting. and i got uh was that platinic no, it was, it was Sholem Schwartz, Barbara okay. Rinowitz, Mitch Mandel, and Moshe Avrick was one of my first teachers. And uh, I got a whole group of my friends to start a home group. And I, my best friend, Avram Goldhart, you know, I, I met the, the night I, I got back from Israel. We were extremely close, like everything I learned. And 
We were so close, it was, Kilo, it was as if he went through the exact same experience that I did. And both of us, you know, that night decided we ha we're going to go to Israel after high school. Even if we went right. to Israel. And we both went, started learning with, with a whole group of our friends. <coughs> and, uh, and we did, that's exactly what we did. I mean, I, I applied to university, but deferred for the year and told my parents that uh, I want to go to go to yeshiva for one year. And they, my, my mother, blessed memory, said, you know, at first over my dead body <laughs> because she knew exactly what happened to my brother. He also promised us for one year. Were you the only year. two in the family? No, we're a family of five. I have another brother and two sisters. Okay. And, uh, but we're the only two who became religious. Right. But, but my whole family did change, really, because of uh, my brother and I becoming uh, religious. But uh, eventually, my parents uh, were convinced that it was, and supported me. And even though they didn't to agree with credit, yeah. yeah, to their great credit, even though they didn't agree with me, I remember very vividly having this conversation with my father, who's actually here visiting Israel right oh, now. Oh, beautiful! Wow. Yeah, he's 85 and amazingly made the trip. Oh, wow. <coughs> and I remember sitting down with him and saying, "Listen, we have a disagreement in values. Like for me, for you, I understand university is the top priority, and I understand where you're coming from. But for me, taking you out and exploring these questions: Is there a God? Is Torah true?" Where do I want, what I really want to ultimately do with my life, that is a higher priority for me than, than going to university. And what am I supposed to do? Do I, I live by my values or your values? He understood that, so he said, okay, go for the year. And, uh, and he was willing to support it. Uh, yeah, I mean, paid tuition. Yeah. I, I had no money whatsoever, but he completely supported yeah. me. Which is a big thing to do because he could say, yeah, live by your yeah. values and pay for your <laughs> values. Yeah. Yeah. And over the course of that year, it became very clear to me, like a lot of, I made a lot of decisions that year. One was, I was convinced that, that there's truth here. The most important thing I can do with my life is learn Torah, but not only just learn it, if this is changing my life, I saw right away, I have a vehicle to change other people's lives. And really within the course of that first year, I decided this is really what I want to do with my life. Was it, because, you know, learn, become a rabbi, and really help the Jewish people. I thought that was the most meaningful thing I could do with my life. And I remember I had to go ask Rev Scheinberg Zetzal a question. I promised my parents, I swore to them, I'm only going to come for one year and then go to university. Do I need to, you know, keep that promise? And he made it very clear, you know, you made that promise with no information, no knowledge whatsoever, and with all the information you have now, you know that that's not something you want to do. So he said, halakhically, according to Jewish law, I do not have to keep that promise. And I told my parents, you know, I want to stay. And, you know, back then it was hard for them because they really had such expectations that for both my brother and me that we were going to go to university and get a degree. And it was after we became rabbis and we got married and we had families, they really saw that uh, this was a wise choice. And not only support us, but they were totally proud of us and had tremendous mm -hmm. nachas. So you were really actualizing your abilities. Yeah, and they became very big supporters. They were very involved with Ashitara in Toronto. They were backers, and they were, you know, they, they really, they really turned around and, and saw the importance of what we were doing, and really believed in what we were doing. They weren't just like you know, they, they were very actively involved with Asian what we were doing, and very proud of of what we we're accomplishing through Ashitara. It's amazing. I want to go back to that night yeah. on the street yeah. after that talk because. You know, as you said, these were the people who were very influential in your life, <coughs> the people that you looked up to, you know, the 21-year-old. 
and yet, rather than sort of buckle when he and, and they started deriding the, the rabbi and the talk, you sort of became emboldened and, and, yeah. and pushed back. That wouldn't necessarily be the traditional or natural reaction. What do you think within you rebelled against that? Yeah, because, because the one, I don't know where it came from. I mean, I really thank the Almighty for it was that I was so driven for meaning and truth and, and still am like that. I've always had that uh, fervor, you know, and drive. You know, my, my parents always thought, you know, I need I should be a lawyer because I'm so argumentative and, like, <laughs> you know, tough and I have positions and, you know, and fight for it. That that drive for meaning, like once it, I, it was so black and white, there's no way I can compromise on it. And that is really that that drive. It did compel me to to go to yeshiva, and it also did me well because even th even the decision back then to go into Jewish outreach, it was it was such an unp unpopular choice. To make that choice, it meant fighting everybody. We had to fight. Even the, back then, the religious world, you were in s to some extent a pariah. It was very unpopular. Why? Because everyone thought, you know, you should just be in full-time learning. And that was just the social pressure. Just study, you know, that's your priority. You, you have to grow yourself. Just worry about yourself. You know, you just need to learn. The, the Kirib movement was just starting then. And, and it, w it was really unheard of. And what Rav Noach was like a, a real pioneer and iconoclast and going against the grain and, and back then to say to Ishitara, you really had to be a fighter it yeah. really was like that you were you, and you, you're fighting against you know the the secular world you left back home and then the religious world that you were diving into right and you really had to carve out your own path it's very different than it was today is, is there is there a downside to that yeah a huge down a huge downside to what it is like today no, but I mean, was there a downside to what it was like back then? In other words, that I think in the spirit of fighting and constantly being was good. It's, it's only great. good. Okay, it's only good, and I think it helped build us. And I think it, it's it's really you see like like so many people who built a Shatara, you know, like which is now you know this worldwide you know uh, movement, or all the people who became religious back then. Like, what was the special sauce? You know, and part of it was. And definitely had a close relationship with with, with Noah Zetzal, but it's also that we all had to fight to get to where we are to where, where you know right. where we are. So I, I think it made a big difference in, in, in shaping you know who we are and, and and helped us become leaders to this to the extent that we are leaders. Do you think at a certain point, after you know battling for so many years, that it was important to kind of be able to make peace with the broader community in a certain oh, way, to kind of integrate in a certain way. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think people misunderstood Rav Noach, you know, to some extent. Like, you know, Rav Noach fought, but he also understood that the yeshiva world is the best community in the world, and that we have to be part of it. And we have to listen to the great rabbis. And even though he was someone who was going against the grain, he understood the limits. Maybe he didn't do the best job in the world in instilling that, you know, but, uh, you know, because it, it's hard. It's hard yes. to keep that kind of balance yeah. back then when, when you do need to fight. Dialectic kind of, yeah. But, you know, for many of us, you know, uh, you know, I look at myself today. You know, I'm, I'm definitely part of this world, and I, and I appreciate that if, if you're going to live in Israel, you have to be part of this world and part of this society. Wherever, whatever society you are, you can't be on the outside because 
you're giving a very conf you, uh, if you if you don't you give a very confused message to your children right so I'm a big believer black is beautiful and <laughs> even though I I realize there's flaws there's mistakes there's changes that have to be made in every community there's changes that have to be made you know the message to give to your children is that you I respect this world this is the best world I respect your your school your Rebbe the Gedolim and this is where we are and even though uh, f within that context then you can in subtlety show there are things that we need to change but the change has to come from within the system not outside of it and that's that's very important and I think also you know back then you know we were we were young we were Bali Tshuva who really didn't know anything and it takes a long time to grow up, yep. become you know responsible and mature, and see complexity, and that takes time. You know, I mean, I think it was Deborah Gottlieb, you know, who said, you don't ever, you don't become like a stable achiever after until ten years you're into it, and, and there's some truth to that because you just you're, you're entering a whole new world, and it, it takes a good long and time to encounter disappointment and yeah, and everything, and, you know, and then, you, you know, and people struggle with that now. You know, you you never finish struggling it with the you know, getting kids into the school system and then Shadduchim and in all this world, you know, Baksham, you know, we, you know, we've done, you know, we've done quite well living the system, but I have friends, you know, who've struggled more than I have. And, uh, but part of, I think the key thing is, 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 is deciding what community you want to belong to. Right. And you can't s sit on the fence. You've got to be, Whatever community you are in, become part of that community. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you do once you, you know, became a rabbi? You're here in Israel, obviously studying for all those years. So I studied did you, here. Did you stay for here? Did you go abroad? I, I studied here for uh, six years, seven years, got smicha, uh, got married, and then and then decided that I, I did want to go abroad for a period of time because I need that experience of, of being out there on the front lines uh, in outreach and go to an Ishar branch and, and get that under my belt and broaden my horizons, really understand what's out there. And even though my wife, who uh, grew up here, like she was, oh, since really? she was seven, or American Israeli, or? American Israeli, and her whole family was here, ah, and not okay. only here, but but her parents were very, are, are still to this very day, are very much believe in the importance of living in Eretz Israel and the midst of Yeshiva Aris and. Uh, you know, my mother is, is is the type of person who just never leaves never Israel. Never leaves Israel. <laughs> so the thought of taking her daughter to Chutzarts to live, even for just a short period of time, went very much against their values. And here I was again, <laughs> again <laughs> in a situation where fighting for what I believe. But this time it's with somebody's but daughter. That's a lot tougher. But this time it's with my in-laws. <laughs> God, I love them, and they're incredible in laws, and they're very supportive, believe in everything we're doing. But that decision was one that they were really dead set against. Yeah, and it was the same trait that I had that I have to do what I believe in, no matter what. That got us uh, to. I imagine leave. your wife herself shared the value. It was very hard. Yes, and it was very difficult for my wife and. She, you know, she knew that she had to stand by her husband and my, my in-laws, you know, I understood where they're coming from and they met with Noah without me knowing to try and convince them and Noah called me in and said, maybe you shouldn't go. And I remember that and he said, like, maybe it's just not worth it. And I said, like, no way. Th this is the right thing to do and I got to live my life and 
we've got to do it. And the compromise was that I, I promised my wife and we made a commitment that we're going to go for two years. And that was a commitment for two years and we're coming back. And even that was unheard of back then. Right. You know, usually when people would go out, they stay. Right. And we thought, uh, you know, I said, I, I, di I did want to live in Israel. Well, your wife could say, you know, look what happened last time you made the commitment for a year. <laughs> and so, well, <laughs> didn't, didn't turn out that way. But I made a commitment, I made a promise, and we decided we bought an apartment before we left, you know. Here we, in Israel. Here in Israel. We're yeah. putting our roots here. And I very much did want to live in Israel. And I did want to raise my children here. I, I, I that really, I, I did foresee my future as, as living in Eretz Israel. And we went to Toronto, and they understood that it was going to be, it's a time-bound commitment. So you didn't go to open or run your own branch, which would have taken Not more own. than two years yeah. to I build. I went back to East Toronto. Be part of an existing structure. And we were starting, we moved to East Thornhill. And oh, sure. so the time when Thornhill was just starting. Before the Bayit? Before, no, the Bayit was there, but it was before the East Thornhill school was okay. there. There was no East building. We were renting out a gym and a school. Well. And it was starting, uh, starting a whole brand new community from like the ground up, and um, and we ended up staying for two years and three months, and believe me, they did everything possibly could to try and get us to stay, and it would have been very uh, threw a lot of Canadian dollars. They threw a lot, you know. <laughs> it would have been very nice to stay, and uh, I was open to staying if my wife was open to staying, uh -huh. and there was no pressure, and she said no, and we went back. Yeah, and uh, and the amazing thing was is that is that um, of the number of people that we worked with in Toronto, a number of them made Aliyah, interesting, and moved and lived in Ramat Beit Shemesh to this day. Yeah. and I think we have, we have a, it's not because of us, but we they have saw a, you do it. We definitely <laughs> have a chelik in that, and a, and a chelik uh, in my wife, who was very much believed in the importance of living in Israel. And you, you don't really see that, you know, they don't really talk about much. It's like, you know, they think that you're going, that's too far. But yeah. maybe it's not enough on people's radar that people are willing to make that ultimate step right. if they have role models and people who can explain why it's really worth the sacrifice. And, and it's a logical progression in their Jewish growth is to live in Israel because th this is really, this is our homeland. This is where it's all happening. This is where we're really shaping Jewish history. And to this day, we have, we have people who, who, you know, 20, we were close to with 24 years ago in right. Thornhill who, right. who live here. Thank God. So if my math is correct, at this point, you're back in Israel and you're not even yet 30 years old uh, or close to it in that ballpark. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Yeah. So. 30, 31, yeah. 30, so, so what did you come back to? So I came, yeah, it was very, I came back to not much. <laughs> And uh, I mean, the world was still here. That you know, <laughs> I, was, I was teaching in age. I was doing uh, te working with campus outreach. I was teaching a training on Orthodox kids to go back to campus, running discovery program that was right. starting up here. Then we started an R and D department and creating new new classes, new programs. Wrote a book, and then the internet started, and I knew nothing about the internet. And I asked someone. That was with Al Gore. Was that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I asked someone, "Can you show me the internet?" And you know, it was like really the. It was like 1994, uh, five, five, seven. Yeah, just like that. really just starting. Yeah. And then um, first emails. It was just like I, I fell off my chair when I saw it, like like whoa, look at the the. the 
the opportunity here to reach the masses of Jews around the world. Like even then, you had a sense right away. Right away, this is yeah. incredible. So I said, so I saw what Asia Tower was doing. They had a, a very nascent website that was really just mainly DV Torah on the you know online. Right. <coughs> and I just saw like th this uh, this is an enormous opportunity here. Like, and then I got word that there was someone in LA who was interested in starting a very significant Jewish website. As who a was funder? willing to fund it. Okay. Willing to fund it. <coughs> and I went to Rav Noach, even though I knew nothing about the internet, and I said, I, I want to take responsibility to write the proposal and pitch the sky. And Rav Noach said, you know, okay, go for it. Because that was Rav, no Rav Noach's, that was, that's what he lived and breathed. If you take responsibility, the door, the door is, you know, go through the door. It's yours, because that's the key thing to succeeding. Is it's not what you know. It's if you take responsibility, you'll figure out what you need to know, and you'll get the right people to do it. So, so he, I, I took the task of uh, working with the few people that Aish had in the internet, you know, department. I worked with them. We had a number of massive brainstorming sessions. We created this entire uh, plan. A 25-page uh, document. Wow. It, w it was a, it was extremely ambitious. I remember it. And then we flew to LA for one day. Wow. And I came home with uh, half a million dollars. Unbelievable. What, what were the my life completely changed my life like overnight. That's incredible. What, what were the, the like the rudimentary elements of this proposal? What did you envision this could be? Something more than just having really interesting articles that people could. Could read a well, yeah, there. there back then there, there was no like the big website was the virtual Jerusalem you know that was like one big Jewish website. there was like the only big Jewish website right. back then um, we envisioned doing a, a just a, a total comprehensive website touching on on every Jewish topic that Jews from all backgrounds would be interested in like that was what we were thinking like like from the Jewish user perspective what would they want right so we started to put together a whole like like clear structure of a site that it, we're still using today of spiritual growth and family and dating and Chagim and the Torah portion and Israel, um, Jewish travel, cooking. Let's create this entire online world of, of relevant, insightful content and wisdom dealing with all these topics. Right. And that really is the core of H.com to this day, which, which is really the embodies the the whole strategy of Rav Noach that Torah has wisdom that speaks to every Jew. If we can just like package it the right way and deliver the wisdom that addresses their issues today, whether it's being a, 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 a parent, a husband, you know, a wife. Um, how do okay? We light the menorah on Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah all about? What does it mean? How do I explain the meaning to my children? What is Shavuot? What, what what's Rosh Hashanah? How do I make this meaningful, relevant to my life? People, you know, they go to shul. Like how how to make it come to life, right? Why should I care about Israel? You know, back then it was like, uh, you know, there was different wars going on. You know, so like we try and like. Basically, anything that was going on in the world, what does Judith have to say about it? You know, contemporary issues and ethics. 
And we started putting together teams of writers and creating content and and build the site. It took six months to build the site. We built our own content management system. Wow. Back, you know, looking back, maybe it, it wasn't sure that was the right move back right. then. But also, there, there, were, there weren't, there weren't, there weren't the resources right. yeah, <laughs> that you have today. So we had to build everything from scratch. And um, we hired a consultant. I remember her taking to me to the side and saying, you know, <clears throat> she said, I'm just very concerned. Once you launch, where on earth are you going to get all this content from? Like even if you wrote the original content. Yeah, like so good. You have like a few weeks, you have a few months worth of content. It's got to regenerate. Yeah. There's like a, this is a, a weekly beast that is devouring content. Like where is it all going to come from? Right. And it wasn't like H toward all these writers. We didn't. Right. And, you know, back then I, I just had the bitachon, the, the trust that I felt I, that this, it was so clear to me, the Almighty created this enormous tool that was changing the world. This is going to be the main vehicle to bring Tower to the world. He's going to make it happen. We've, we, we've got to do our best effort. He's going to, I don't know where we're going to go. Right. <laughs> but we're going, we're, we're going to get it. Yeah. And I have to have the bitachon that, that it's going to happen. And we had these ambitious goals where Noah thought we were crazy. Really? really he, back then, he didn't appreciate the power of the internet. And he was from a different generation. Yeah, he yeah. thought, you know, you're going to get 50,000 views a month. That would be incredible. Right. Like, wow. <coughs> when we launched, I mean, Noah maybe didn't get it at first, but he, he's the quickest learner. And he immediately saw this thing is explosive. This is huge. You know, and, and everything, every new tool, Rivnok was right there, you know, like, how do we leverage this? How do we maximize this? You know, from articles, you know, like he said, okay, great, you got an article, but that's not enough. You've got to, I mean, it was one of your questions that you've got to, like, give them tools to use now and questions to think about the article. Like, like take every article, make sure you're, you're leveraging and going as far as you possibly can. You know, then we started with videos. Okay, how do we get these videos out there? What, what kind of video, more other videos could we be creating? What is this thing, YouTube? What is Google, like anything new, he's so curious and just all he cared about was what's gonna work. If it works, use it, maximize it. So there was always this, this, this culture of innovation and newness and we were, you know, boxing right there at the beginning and the site was a huge hit from the get-go. Yeah, what was the initial response? I remember the initial response, it was like, it made a lot of ways. The forward I remember came out with uh, an article like, Singing the praises of H.com. Really? Yeah. I didn't appreciate it back then, like the importance of that, but they basically gave us, like, you know, like a five star, you know, like, wow. The Jewish, like, like this is the Jewish super site, you know, because it really was, back then, it was like really revolutionary. Like, yeah. there was no other site of its kind that's trying to do what we do. And even to this day, I think that H.com is unique because. You know, we're different than the more firm websites, which are, are amazing, and there's so many today that give it so many shireen. But I think that our site is unique is that in that we're discussing contemporary yeah. issues, current events, and in in, in giving just relevant wisdom that speaks to Jews from all backgrounds. It's more accessible to, to the average person. Yeah, and it really, that is our, our we have not lost our primary target group are non-religious Jews. We have many, many religious Jews come to our site. We know that. And many 
you know, from kids come to it and love it and, and it's great. But that is not who we're making the site for. Like, we will not post content that speaks only to the religious Jew because that will turn off our main target group, which is the non-religious Jew. So it's a challenge to create, you know, content that is, is giving over meaningful wisdom, but it's in, in, in using current contemporary, you know, platform. So, you know, like I'm just in the middle of any article about like the fact that Apple became the first c company that reached is trillion dollars on the stock market. Yeah. So, you know, wh what does, what can we, how can we use that to give over, you know, a timely Jewish message, you know, so that, that's what we're doing, you know, we, so we use books and videos and celebrities, you know, anything that, no, that, that people around the world are talking about, let's talk about it as well. How did the site actually unfold? How did you start generating that volume of content uh, that you well, were worried we about? we started, uh, I, I reached out to a lot of different writers and built relationships with them. And, and for pay or these? It's for pay. It okay. is for pay. I mean, it's not a lot of pay. I understand. Right. But it's definitely people who wanted to make an impact and who were talented writers. And I work with them. And Bakshan built a lot of relations with a lot of writers, like who I think really get, got there even started at H.com. You know, Sarah Riggler was a, sure. you know, everyone knows now, she, she really started at H.com. And we became very close and worked with her, Yako Solomon, Sarah Shapiro, even Rebus and Veggie Tversky. I remember calling her up and said, let's start a column. And writing was completely new for her back then. And uh, so we nurtured a, a lot of different writers. And that's what I do. Like, I'm always looking for new talent, right. new voices and writers. And, you know, Rabbi Blech is a tremendous, you know, uh, rabbi. He's got every, something to say about everything. Right. Baruch Hashem. And, you know, Kanina, you should you know live well, and uh, and he's he's tremendous, and and the more reliable writers that we can get, the the, the better. But also, once the site got out there, <coughs> it really became a platform for the Jewish world, the people to send in their articles, and we get tons and tons of submissions. Right. You know, and those I are would say not for pay. No, you so many of them are for pay, some oh, of them are not. But uh, the vast majority of them, you know, we don't accept. Right. That's the truth. But, I, but many of them... In all fairness, I've been rejected before, Rabbi, and that's okay. Really? <laughs> Even though I have a master's okay. degree in writing, but... Uh, really? So let's yeah, talk about there you go. Okay. <laughs> I think the content wasn't uh, geared in the, in the exact right way that okay. you wanted. But, but I've ghostwritten many articles that have gotten on your site uh, for okay. a friend of mine. <laughs> so, but we got many excellent articles that way. And, uh, and new writers have, have surfaced that way. So really it's a platform for the, just the Jewish world to like, people can share their stories and their, and their ideas. How has the site evolved over the years? Obviously the internet has changed dramatically and not just once, but dozens and dozens of times. Yeah, so now you know, video has become extremely important, you know, and, we're, and we, I wish we could do more of a video. Yeah. I mean, we're, I, if, we're, if we had the budget, I, I would love to have, my dream would be to have our, a full-time video you know, workshop where we have, you know, writers and, and videographers and we're churning out videos all the time. That would be my dream of having more video content than even written content. But it's expensive and, yeah. uh, you know, we don't do that. Uh, but we, you know, Boxing, we're doing more, we're, we try and do as much as we can. Uh, you know, it's a world of social media, which we, you know, Boxing, we have. Yeah. How have you adapted to that? Have you you know, we, we have a, we have a hundred thousand, you know, Facebook friends on, on our Facebook page. 
But the truth is that we we're, we're just scratching the surface, right. with, and I think we just redesigned our site. You know, if you noticed, I saw that like a yes. few months ago, we did a redesign. It was very much needed. We only did half the half the redesign of what we wanted to do. There's a whole second phase because of cost. Because of cost, there's a second phase that's been designed of using gamification tools. Interesting. Which we want to implement because we think that it, gamification basically is taking basically eight different strategies that that without people users realizing and getting them to do certain things that you want them to do that they naturally want to do like people play games not because they're told to or they have to because they want to sure so every game is utilizing different kinds of strategy and techniques that get the user to stick with this game right so we we worked with a really uh, phenomenal uh, expert in gamification uh, an Asian fellow who is a religious Christian who totally got what H.com was all about, really respected uh, the goals of H.com and loves the Jewish people and really wanted to help us. And he became like part of the team, That's like cool. overnight, like he just got us. It was really fascinating. And he really helped us define our goals and what, where is that we want to move our users? You know, it's a very important process, like there really is a process. You know, we get people just to come to the site, but we want them to sign up our email. We want them to share our content. We want them to uh, chat with the rabbi, which is a new thing that we started to do, right. which is, was tremendously successful. We want them to sign up on our Asia Academy to take courses. Right. We want them to come on a mission to Israel, come to our Israel program. We want them to hook up with a, a phone chavrusa study partner online, because that, that can change their life. We want them to get involved with the local the local rabbi. Yeah, their local rabbi because we can we know we realize we can only take them so far, and our goal is to really hand them off to to a live local person. Yeah, that can make them a, a great impact. So, how do we design the site to to ensure that wherever they're at, they are taking their next step in their Jewish journey? That's basically what we're trying to do. So we have this whole vision of different incentives and, and it adds an exciting layer of encouraging people Just to, an to do new proposition. things. So it, it's programming, it's designing, we need to raise another like you know, $100,000 okay. in order to make it happen. Uh, and we want to make it happen. It's an experiment, I'm not sure it's going to work, but if it does work, the impact that the site can make on changing people and encouraging the Jewish growth really could be huge. So that's why we wanted to do it. We didn't want to just do a, a facelift. We wanted to do something that we thought really could make a, a greater impact. Right. So so we'll see. Um, with social media, we're now at the point where we think the site's where it's at, where we can really invest in social media. And we're looking to make certain hires, and we're going to start investing in that. And I'm very excited about that, because I think it's a... I, I'm going to learn it all up, and, right. uh, and it's going to require creating new content. Like sure. it's, it's like a optimized for those. Yeah, platforms. it's great what we've been doing so far, but we're scratching the surface. And I think that the vision that we have is is taking our Facebook page and really creating like an East.com community, right. where I, I'm open to be really more involved uh, in. in, in dialoguing with people on right. our Facebook page, discussing the content and creating new content that's really geared for Facebook and Instagram. Right. How closely do you monitor the, the statistics and the listeners or the, the, the viewers? How many viewers are you getting on an average month? And we, we get about a million visits a month on the English site. Those are unique visits or? Those are unique visits, not visitors. Not visitors. visitors. We get a various, visitors, it varies from you know 650,000 to 800,000. 
unique visitors. About half that is through search engine traffic. Interesting. But it recently took a hit. I think Google recently changed their algorithms. Changed the algorithms. <laughs> Always and we definitely got a, it definitely affected all sites and affected us as well. Wow. Um, we also have Hebrew and Spanish websites. Oh, wow. Yeah. And between all the sites, we have about 360,000 unique uh, email subscribers. Interesting. So they're getting like a digest on a weekly They get basis. like basically three, uh, like for the English site, we, have, we send out three emails a week of our new content. And then we also have specific uh, email lists like spirituality, Israel, dating. People selected those. Yeah, people want specifically those or, or Torah, par, you know, the Parsha. Right. Um, and so I'm always looking at the, I'm looking at stats on the content and seeing what content ah, what the is, well, is, yeah. uh, is hitting and what's not. Sure. And, uh, so, and then the overall traffic, you know, there's more that we could be doing and drilling down with Google right. Analytics, but, which we occasionally do. And, uh, how has the site been funded since that initial half million dollar investment? Yeah, that's a good question. Advertising <laughs> or you would so say back then advertising, outfits. that donor Yuri Pickover in LA, who God bless him, was really the the father of H.com. He was a main supporter for a number of years. Sure. Right, and then we ha we have a a small group of significant donors, and then we have like a a wide base of just small donors who come to the site. Give eighteen thirty six sure. ten dollars a month. Those those donors. If every reader would just give five dollars, a dollar a month, yeah, it would more than cover us. Right. I wish they would. Well, why isn't advertising? Uh, because if it's so, so many and advertising, and then advertising yeah. was covering at one point like about thirty percent of our budget was through advertising. Yeah. But today, I think people have realized that internet advertising uh, is not so effective. Interesting. Which it isn't. So it's been much harder to get advertisers on the site. And we, we're, we uh, financially, we are struggling. There's no question about it. We struggle to you know, make ends meet and cover our budget. And, and not only struggling just to cover our budget, but there's so much more that we would be doing if we had the budget. Right. Um, so we need to be working on I'm surprised on that. at that because it's a big, it's a podcasting, um, podcasting is actually known to have very um, successful advertising. Uh, and advertisers appreciate advertising on podcasts because it's a very niche down audience. It's kind of a very you know high rate of return. And so I'm surprised that certain niche websites wouldn't deliver a similar kind of return. I mean, we have you know we were the Jewish media group that gets us Jewish advertisers, but it's so it's it's a uh, yeah, it's hard. It's yeah. hard. I mean, money you know fundraising is is definitely the biggest challenge that that we're facing. How big is the team right now that works on the site? You'd be surprised how small it is. Yeah. It's extremely small. Uh, Full-time people who work at H.com is about five people. Wow. Uh, we have a few uh, part-time people, and that's it. And, and the, the, all, writer, the writer is... All the, the vast majority of our writers are freelance writers. But uh, in, in, in for editing, uh, like I'm the sole editor. You do the editing of all the articles. I edit every wow. single piece that goes up on H.com. Oh, my goodness. And <laughs> responsible to get all the content of H.com. Yeah, and we have uh, one, uh, you know, my executive director, Jack Kala, and we have uh, two programmers, and it's designer, in-house designer. Even our, no, and but now we're looking to hire a part-time graphics person and a social media director. But it's extremely lean and mean. Wow, people are shocked when they hear that because we we are producing so much content, and yeah. we really do have a huge site, but it's. A very small operation. 
Unbelievable. What's uh, what's the next chapter for each.com? The next chapter is okay, tackling social media and really growing on that. We want it. We have a program called H Academy that we just recently redesigned, and we want to roll out a whole slew of short courses, primarily video based, for people who really want to like take the next step in their Jewish learning. Uh, with you know top of line Jewish speakers, that's a key goal. We have a program called Chat with the Rabbi, which extremely successful where there was Svi Broker, we were spending four hours a day sure. just just chatting with people yeah. coming on H.com and it's just direct one-on-one frontline outreach answering the direct questions getting them to subscribe, getting them hooked up to their local you know rabbi or rabbis in, the, in, in, in their city our dream is to have that 24 hours a day it's just a question of money we know it works uh, it's just a question of funding. And then videos are, are it's a key priority. I really do want to hire somebody full-time and build a whole video operation and have a whole creative team that are creating new things. Because if we want to reach young people, they want short videos that cut to the chase and that are, you know, we, we've had a lot of success with viral videos, you know, that, uh, some that we, I'm sure you've seen some of our music sure. videos with yes. the dancing, the dancing and, uh, yeah. and I, I wrote a lot of those. You produce those in house, or it's all produced in house, and people are shocked to find out. Like, you know, I, many of them I wrote the lyrics to the to the music, <laughs> and then uh, we work with uh, Shooties and Micah Smith, and working with one musician who does the music, and they were, were huge hits. You know, some got like millions of views. Yeah. And it's a whole team of people, just like you know, in-house team that make it work. Yeah, it's much harder to do that today because back then it was new, it was innovative, novel. You got to see this, you know, so everyone was sharing it. But today, these music videos and music parodies, been there, done that. Yeah. Everyone does them. It's a saturated market. Yeah. So we actually stopped doing it because they're not cheap. They're 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 expensive to do to do well. They take a lot of work. And so if, if, if it's, it's, it's much harder to make it a bullseye to really have them go viral. Yeah. Um, so we have to, but so you need to come up with new things. Right. You know? Well, we look forward to seeing uh, those new things emerge. I'm struck as we close by the, uh, the contrast or the juxtaposition of sitting by the oldest relic at the spot in the Jewish world, the Western Wall, which retained the, the temple right behind it that we look forward to. Uh, to rebuilding and yet trying to constantly innovate and, and bring Judaism to the new generation. If that's not the uh, most apt metaphor for what Judaism is all about, that exactly. fusion of ancient and modern, then I don't know what, what is a better description. So Nehemiah Cooper-Smith, thank you very much for your service in that arena, trying to bring that ancient wisdom into the modern world. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Take care. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.